Section 27 The Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant Transcendental Doctrine of Elements Part 2nd Transcendental Logic Second Division Transcendental Dialectic Book 2 Of the Dialectical Procedure of Pure Reason Chapter 2 The Antinomy of Pure Reason Section 3 of the interest of reason in these self-contradictions. We have thus completely before us the dialectical procedure of the cosmological ideas. No possible experience can present us with an object adequate to them in extent. Nay, more, reason itself cannot cogitate them as according with the general laws of experience. And yet, they are not arbitrary fictions of thought. On the contrary, Reason, in its uninterrupted progress in the empirical synthesis, is necessarily conducted to them when it endeavors to free from all conditions and to comprehend in its unconditioned totality that which can only be determined conditionally in accordance with the laws of experience. These dialectical propositions are so many attempts to solve four natural and unavoidable problems of reason. There are neither more nor can there be less than this number, because there are no other series of synthetical hypotheses limiting a priori the empirical synthesis. The brilliant claims of reason striving to extend its dominion beyond the limits of experience have been represented above only in dry formulae, which contain merely the grounds of its pretensions. They have, besides, in conformity with the character of a transcendental philosophy, been freed from every empirical element, although the full splendor of the promises they hold out, and the anticipations they excite, manifests itself only when in connection with empirical cognitions. In the application of them, however, and in the advancing enlargement of the employment of reason, while struggling to rise from the region of experience and to soar to those sublime ideas, philosophy discovers a value and a dignity which, if it could but make good its assertions, would raise it far above all other departments of human knowledge, professing, as it does, to present a sure foundation for our highest hopes and the ultimate aims of all the exertions of reason. The Questions whether the world has a beginning and a limit to its extension in space, whether there exists anywhere, or perhaps in my own thinking self, an indivisible and indestructible unity, or whether nothing but what is divisible and transitory exists, whether I am a free agent, or, like other beings, am bound in the chains of nature and fate, whether, finally, there is a supreme cause of the world, or all our thought and speculation must end with nature and the order of external things, are questions, for the solution of which the mathematician would willingly exchange his whole science, for in it there is no satisfaction for the highest aspirations and most ardent desires of humanity. Nay, it may even be said that the true value of mathematics, that pride of human reason, consists in this, 
that she guides reason to the knowledge of nature, in her greater as well as in her less manifestations, in her beautiful order and regularity, guides her, moreover, to an insight into the wonderful unity of the moving forces in the operations of nature, far beyond the expectations of a philosophy building only on experience, and that she thus encourages philosophy to extend the province of reason beyond all experience, and at the same time provides it with the most excellent materials for supporting its investigations, in so far as their nature admits, by adequate and accordant intuitions. Unfortunately for speculation, but perhaps fortunately for the practical interests of humanity, reason, in the midst of her highest anticipations, finds herself hemmed in by a press of opposite and contradictory conclusions, from which neither her honor nor her safety will permit her to draw back. Nor can she regard these conflicting trains of reasoning with indifference as mere passages at arms. Still less can she command peace, for in the subject of the conflict she has a deep interest. There is no other course left open to her than to reflect with herself upon the origin of this disunion in reason, whether it may not arise from a mere misunderstanding. After such an inquiry, arrogant claims would have to be given up on both sides, but the sovereignty of reason over understanding and sense would be based upon a sure foundation. We shall, at present, defer this radical inquiry, and, in the meantime, consider for a little what side in the controversy we should most willingly take if we were obliged to become partisans at all. As, in this case, we leave out of sight altogether the logical criterion of truth, and merely consult our own interest in reference to the question, these considerations, although inadequate to settle the question of right in either party, will enable us to comprehend how those who have taken part in the struggle adopt the one view rather than the other. No special insight into the subject, however, having influenced their choice. They will, at the same time, explain to us many other things by the way. For example, the fiery zeal on the one side, and the cold maintenance of their cause on the other. Why the one party has met with the warmest approbations, and the other has always been repulsed by irreconcilable prejudices. There is one thing, however, that determines the proper point of view, from which alone this preliminary inquiry can be instituted and carried on with the proper completeness, and that is, the comparison of the principles from which both sides, thesis and antithesis, proceed. My readers would remark in the propositions of the antithesis a complete uniformity in the mode of thought and a perfect unity of principle. Its principle was that of pure empiricism, not only in the explication of the phenomena in the world, but also in the solution of the transcendental ideas, even of that of the universe itself. The affirmations of the thesis, on the contrary, were based, in addition to the empirical mode of explanation employed in the series of phenomena, 
on intellectual propositions, and its principles were in so far not simple. I shall term the thesis, in view of its essential characteristic, the dogmatism of pure reason. On the side of dogmatism, or of the thesis, therefore, in the determination of the cosmological ideas, we find, first, a practical interest, which must be very dear to every right-thinking man. That the world has a beginning, that the nature of my thinking self is simple and therefore indestructible, that I am a free agent and raised above the compulsion of nature and her laws, and finally, that the entire order of things which form the world is dependent upon a supreme being from whom the whole receives unity and connection. These are so many foundation stones of morality and religion. The antithesis deprives us of all these supports, or at least seems so to deprive us. Second, a speculative interest of reason manifests itself on this side. For, if we take the transcendental ideas and employ them in the manner which the thesis directs, we can exhibit completely a priori the entire chain of conditions, and understand the derivation of the conditioned, beginning from the unconditioned. This the antithesis does not do, and for this reason does not meet with so welcome a reception. For it can give no answer to our question respecting the conditions of its synthesis, except such as must be supplemented by another question, and so on, to infinity. According to it, we must rise from a given beginning to one still higher. Every part conducts us to a still smaller one. Every event is preceded by another event which is its cause and the conditions of existence rest always upon other and still higher conditions, and find neither end nor basis in some self-subsistent thing as the primary being. Third, this side has also the advantage of popularity, and this constitutes no small part of its claim to favor. The common understanding does not find the least difficulty in the idea of the unconditioned beginning of all synthesis, accustomed, as it is, rather to allow our consequences than to seek for a proper basis for cognition. In the conception of an absolute first, moreover, the possibility of which it does not inquire into, it is highly gratified to find a firmly established point of departure for its attempts at theory while, in the restless and continuous ascent from the conditioned to the condition, always with one foot in the air, it can find no satisfaction. On the side of the antithesis, or empiricism, in the determination of the cosmological ideas, first, we cannot discover any such practical interest arising from pure principles of reason as morality and religion present. On the contrary, pure empiricism seems to empty them of all their power and influence. 
if there does not exist a supreme being distinct from the world, if the world is without beginning, consequently without a creator, if our wills are not free, and the soul is divisible, and subject to corruption, just like matter, the ideas and principles of morality lose all validity and fall with the transcendental ideas which constituted their theoretical support. Second. But empiricism, in compensation, holds out to reason, in its speculative interests, certain important advantages, far exceeding any that the dogmatist can promise us. For, when employed by the empiricist, Understanding is always upon its proper ground of investigation, the field of possible experience, the laws of which it can explore, and thus extend its cognition securely and with clear intelligence, without being stopped by limits in any direction. Here can it, and ought it, to find and present to intuition its proper object, not only in itself, but in all its relations, or, if it employ conceptions, upon this ground it can always present the corresponding images in clear and unmistakable intuitions. It is quite unnecessary for it to renounce the guidance of nature, to attach itself to ideas, the objects of which it cannot know, because, as mere intellectual entities, they cannot be presented in any intuition. On the contrary, it is not even permitted to abandon its proper occupation, under the pretense that it has been brought to a conclusion, for it never can be, and to pass into the region of idealizing reason and transcendent conceptions, which it is not required to observe and explore the laws of nature, but merely to think and to examine, secure from being contradicted by facts, because they have not been called as witnesses, but passed by, or perhaps subordinated to the so-called higher interests and considerations of pure reason. Hence the empiricist will never allow himself to accept any epoch of nature for the first, the absolutely primal state. He will not believe that there can be limits to his outlook into her wide domains, nor pass from the objects of nature, which he can satisfactorily explain by means of observation and mathematical thought, which he can determine synthetically in intuition, to those which neither sense nor imagination can ever present in concreto. He will not concede the existence of a faculty in nature, operating independently of the laws of nature, a concession which would introduce uncertainty into the procedure of the understanding which is guided by necessary laws to the observation of phenomena. Nor, finally, will he permit himself to seek a cause beyond nature, inasmuch as we know nothing but it, and from it alone receive an objective basis for all our conceptions and instruction in the unvarying laws of things. In truth, if the empirical philosopher had no other purpose in the establishment of his antithesis than to check the presumption of a reason which mistakes its true destination, which boasts of its insight and its knowledge, just where all insight and knowledge cease to exist, 
and regards that which is valid only in relation to a practical interest as an advancement of the speculative interests of the mind, in order, when it is convenient for itself, to break the thread of our physical investigations, and, under pretense of extending our cognition, connect them with transcendental ideas, by means of which we really know only that we know nothing, if, I say, the empiricist rested satisfied with this benefit, the principle advanced by him would be a maxim recommending moderation in the pretensions of reason, and modesty in its affirmations, and at the same time would direct us to the right mode of extending the province of the understanding, by the help of the only true teacher, experience. In obedience to this advice, intellectual hypotheses and faith would not be called an aid of our practical interests, nor should we introduce them under the pompous titles of science and insight. For speculative cognition cannot help find an objective basis any otherwhere than in experience, and, when we overstep its limits, our synthesis, which requires ever new cognitions independent of experience, has no substratum of intuition upon which to build. But if, as often happens, empiricism, in relation to ideas, becomes itself dogmatic, and boldly denies that which is above the sphere of its phenomenal cognition, it falls itself into the error of intemperance, an error which is here all the more reprehensible, as thereby the practical interest of reason receives an irreparable injury. And this constitutes the opposition between Epicureanism and Platonism. Footnote. It is, however, still a matter of doubt whether Epicurus ever propounded these principles as directions for the objective employment of the understanding. If, indeed, they were nothing more than maxims for the speculative exercise of reason, he gives evidence therein of a more genuine philosophic spirit than any of the philosophers of antiquity. That, in the explanation of phenomena, we must proceed as if the field of inquiry had neither limits in space nor commencement in time, that we must be satisfied with the teaching of experience in reference to the material of which the world is posed, that we must not look for any other mode of the origination of events than that which is determined by the unalterable laws of nature, and finally, that we not employ the hypothesis of a cause distinct from the world to account for a phenomenon, or for the world itself, are principles for the extension of speculative philosophy, and the discovery of the true sources of the principles of morals, which, however little conformed to in the present day, are undoubtedly correct. At the same time, anyone desirous of ignoring, in mere speculation, these dogmatical propositions, need not, for that reason, be accused of denying them. Return to Text Both Epicurus and Plato assert more in their systems than they know. The former encourages and advances science. 
although to the prejudice of the practical. The latter presents us with excellent principles for the investigation of the practical, but, in relation to everything regarding which we can attain to speculative cognition, permits reason to append idealistic explanations of natural phenomena to the great injury of physical investigation. Third, in regard to the third motive for the preliminary choice of a party in this war of assertions, it seems very extraordinary that empiricism should be utterly unpopular. We should be inclined to believe that the common understanding would receive it with pleasure, promising as it does to satisfy it without passing the bounds of experience and its connected order, while transcendental dogmatism obliges it to rise to conceptions which far surpass the intelligence and ability of the most practiced thinkers. But in this, in truth, is to be found its real motive. For the common understanding thus finds itself in a situation where not even the most learned can have the advantage of it. If it understands little or nothing about these transcendental conceptions, no one can boast of understanding any more, and although it may not express itself in so scholastically correct a manner as others, it can busy itself with reasoning and arguments without end, wandering among mere ideas, about which one can always be very eloquent, because we know nothing about them, while, in the observation and investigation of nature, it would be forced to remain dumb and to confess its utter ignorance. Thus, indolence and vanity form of themselves strong recommendations of these principles. Besides, although it is a hard thing for a philosopher to assume a principle of which he can give to himself no reasonable account, and still more to employ conceptions, the objective reality of which cannot be established, Nothing is more usual with the common understanding. It wants something which will allow it to go to work with confidence. The difficulty of even comprehending a supposition does not disquiet it, because, not knowing what comprehending means, it never even thinks of the supposition it may be adopting as a principle, and regards as known that with which it has become familiar from constant use. And, at last, all speculative interests disappear before the practical interests which it holds dear, and it fancies that it understands and knows what its necessities and hopes incite it to assume or to believe. Thus, the empiricism of transcendentally idealizing reason is robbed of all popularity, and however prejudicial it may be to the highest practical principles, there is no fear that it will ever pass the limits of the schools, or acquire any favor or influence in society, or with the multitude. Human reason is by nature architectonic, that is to say, it regards all cognitions as parts of a possible system, and hence accepts only such principles as at least do not incapacitate a cognition 
to which we may have attained from being placed, along with others, in a general system. But the propositions of the antithesis are of a character which renders the completion of an edifice of cognitions impossible. According to these, beyond one state or epoch of the world, there is always to be found one more ancient, and in every part always other parts themselves divisible, preceding every event another, the origin of which must itself be sought still higher, and everything in existence is conditioned, and still not dependent on an unconditioned and primal existence. As, therefore, the antithesis will not concede the existence of a first beginning which might be available as a foundation, a complete edifice of cognition, in the presence of such hypothesis, is utterly impossible. Thus, the architectonic interest of reason, which requires a unity, not empirical, but a priori and rational, forms a natural recommendation for the assertions of the thesis in our antinomy. But, if anyone could free himself entirely from all considerations of interest, and weigh, without partiality, the assertions of reason, attending only to their content, irrespective of the consequences which follow from them, such a person, on the supposition that he knew no other way out of the confusion than to settle the truth of one or other of the conflicting doctrines, would live in a state of continual hesitation. Today he would feel convinced that the human will is free. Tomorrow, considering the indissoluble chain of nature, he would look on freedom as a mere illusion, and declare nature to be all in all. But, if he were called to action, the play of the merely speculative reason would disappear like the shapes of a dream, and practical interest would dictate his choice of principles. But, as it well befits a reflective and inquiring being to devote certain periods of time to the examination of its own reason, to divest itself of all partiality, and frankly to communicate its observations for the judgment and opinion of others, so no one can be blamed for much less prevented from placing both parties on their trial. With permission to end themselves, free from intimidation, before intimidation, before a sworn jury of equal condition with themselves, the condition of weak and fallible men. End section 3 this recording is in the public domain.